wonder uh, if you could think about a time when you had a crazy dream. Okay, are you with me? Just think back for a second to a time when you uh, had a dream that was so real that you either woke up completely joyful because it was such a great dream, or you woke up in a horrible mood <laughs> because it was such a bad dream. Can you think of a dream like that? I remember a, a couple of dreams like this in my life. The, the earliest one I can remember, this is crazy, I must have only been two or three years old. I, uh, I was in daycare at the time. My mom worked at a daycare next door to my dad's job. And so she would work there during the day, and I became familiar with the daycare. And at night, one night, I had a dream. And I dreamed that I was at the daycare all by myself in the dark, right? Okay, but in order to understand this dream, you have to know the context for it, okay? So my dad worked for Multimedia Cable Vision back in the 80s, right? <laughs> so now it's Cox Communications and all that, right? But it used to be Multimedia Cable Vision. My dad uh, was a, a draftsman for them and, and drew all the, the plans for laying cable all across Oklahoma. You, you know, we only have cable today because my dad drew the plans for you, so you're welcome. And I'll tell my dad that you're very grateful. <laughs> but uh, because of that, even though we were pretty poor growing up, we had free cable. So that was like, oh, a gift, you know. So we got to see all the boxing matches, got to see Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield, you know, pay-per-view, all that cool stuff. We got all that. And one of the things my dad would do would let us watch movies that were maybe too mature for us. And so my younger brother and him loved to watch Tales from the Crypt. I don't know if you remember that. But I'm a total weenie when it comes to horror movies, so I never watched it. But I did watch a show called uh, Little Shop of Horrors. I bet you're familiar with this. It used to be, I think, a Broadway musical. It became a movie, and now it's a Broadway musical again or vice versa. I don't really know the order. I haven't done any research because I had a dream related to Little Shop of Horrors. And that should tell you something uh, about my dad, which is hilarious. Sorry, Dad, if you're watching. But um, he would let us watch these shows when we were little. And so I couldn't have been older than four because I was in this daycare at the time. And I had a dream where I was at the daycare alone. And it was night. It was empty and it was dark. And in the corner of the daycare was the plant from Little Shop of Horrors. A plant that to this day I, I can't look at without getting goosebumps. And this plant kept looking at me, this little boy, and saying, feed me, Levi, feed me. <laughs> I can laugh now, but truly uh, terrified me as a kid, right? <clears throat> I mean, it was so scary that even today, over 30 years later, I'm still, uh, I still can't watch that show, right? So dreams really stay with you, especially powerful dreams. And I bet if you think back, you probably had some good ones, too, where you woke up in the morning in a great mood and then you realized, oh, that was just a dream, too. But there's this thing that's very close to a dream that we hear about in the Bible pretty often. It's called a vision. And the only difference, really, between a dream and a vision is that a dream uh, is something that happens while you're sleeping. And a vision is something that happens while you're awake, typically. That's really the only difference between the two. Uh, and so what we learn about in our story today is sort of a tale of two kinds of visions. Now, we're pulling this story from the book of Acts, chapter 10, and it's a really long story. It's the whole chapter, chapter 10 of the book of Acts. But just to give you a little background, 
The book of Acts is kind of like the fifth gospel. It's been referred that way by many early Christians. And that's because it's really part two. It's like a sequel to the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both of those. He wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and they really kind of go together seamlessly. If you read them together, they're kind of one story in two volumes. And so the book of Acts is this story of the early church right after Jesus has died and risen from the dead. He's gone up into heaven, and now the early church is trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? And part of that figuring out is helped by the Holy Spirit. You know, God is nurturing this early church along and guiding them. And one of the things that God does is provide some visions, provide some experiences of God that help people to make decisions about how to do the early church. And so in Acts chapter 10, we see a story of two visions. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because it would take like seven minutes to read it all the way through, but I definitely encourage you to go read it. Uh, it's a really good story. Luke is a fantastic storyteller, and he includes a lot of little details that I think are pretty fantastic. Well, let's just talk a little bit about the story from Acts chapter 10. We really have two main characters in this story. We have a guy named Cornelius, and he's like a, a Roman officer. He's very important, pretty wealthy, and very powerful. So Cornelius is over here, and he is not a Jew. He's what we call a Gentile. Gentiles are everybody that's not Jewish. So most of you watching this are probably Gentiles. So he's a Gentile, a Roman uh, army officer, essentially, and a person of wealth and power. And over here, we have a guy named Peter. You're probably familiar with Peter. Peter was like Jesus's right-hand man. He was like the conciliary or, or the chief of staff. For Jesus. Now, to be sure, I don't think he was Jesus's best friend. In my mind, that was John. John was like Jesus' soul friend, his anamkara, as they say in the Celtic tradition. But Peter was the one that got things done, right? The one that kept the wheels turning and the rubber burning, right? <laughs> and so Peter, this first among equals of the disciples, is one of the leaders of the early church. And the early church had a big problem. They understood that Jesus had taught, and they could see back in the old scriptures, that the old scriptures were teaching it too, that everybody was invited into God's family, Jew or Gentile. But here's the problem. Almost every early Christian was Jewish. And the Jewish people had spent so much time living a life set apart from Gentiles, it was extremely uncomfortable and awkward to try to put those two kinds of people back together. You see, the Jewish people had developed all these different ways of being through their scriptures and through tradition and practice where they lived very differently. They had different rules for hygiene, different rules for culture and hospitality, uh, different rules for diet and how they ate. And so they just lived so differently from the rest of culture that it was really difficult and very uncomfortable to try to bring these two different kinds of people together. The early church really hadn't reckoned with this yet. And I think people like Peter still weren't all in with the idea that Gentiles could be part of God's family. They're still figuring all this out. And they lived such a life of being set apart and separate from Gentiles that they really weren't too open to the idea that everybody was invited to the God party. And they needed some help, a little nudging, a little pushing along. And so what we see in this story is Peter having a vision. 
Now, this story is one of the funniest stories in the Bible. That's why I said go read Acts chapter 10. It's probably second only to when Balaam's donkey talks to him, which is also a hilarious story in the Hebrew Bible. But this story is very funny because what happens is Peter is really, really hungry. But he's going up to the roof of the house he's visiting to pray. But he's starving. All he can think about is food. And so what's really funny about this vision is it's a vision of food. He starts to pray, and he starts to see a vision of this sheet being lowered from the sky with all these different kinds of animals on it, including animals that Jews did not eat. Lizards and pigs and different kinds of birds, different things that Jews would not mess with and would not eat. They called them unclean animals. And if you want to learn about that, there's a whole bunch of information in the Hebrew Bible about it, especially in Leviticus and Exodus. It talks about different rules like that. But all throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there's information about clean and unclean animals and all these dietary restrictions, right? And so Peter has this vision of all these clean and unclean animals coming down on a sheet from heaven and this voice of God saying, go ahead, kill something and eat it. It's okay. I know you're hungry. <laughs> it's funny. It's like cloudy with a chance uh, of meatballs, right? It's like this uh, this raining of food from heaven, and God's like, "Go ahead and try some." Peter's like, "I can't. This is this is stuff I'm not allowed to eat." You might think, but also like any movie you've ever seen where they're on a deserted island, you know, one guy looks at another, and all he sees is a cheeseburger. And that's the kind of thing that's going on with Peter right now. He's starving and he's seeing food. But the problem is he's seeing unclean food. So he knows it's not just his appetite talking. If it was, he wouldn't be seeing lizards because he's never had a lizard to eat before. So he knew something else was going on. And he heard the audible voice of God saying, it's okay. It doesn't matter if you eat clean or unclean because I've made things clean. Interesting, right? Well, it's so often the case when God is working, God will often work on different people in different places and then bring them together. And so God had also been working on this Roman official named Cornelius. God had sent a messenger to Cornelius to, to kind of get him ready to say, hey, there's a guy named Simon Peter and he's in town and you need to send for him because he's got some important information for you. Now, Cornelius was also uh, someone we call a God follower which means he was a Gentile, but he already was following the God Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. He, he had sort of bought into the idea that there was one God, and that was pretty unusual in the first century. So he was a Gentile, but he was already sort of amenable or open to the story of the God of Israel. So he got this, this message from God, this vision of an angel from God, and he sent for Peter. Peter comes to him, and they have this conversation. Peter comes to realize something really important. We're going to circle back around to the story in a second. But what we need to know is that Peter has been invited to taste and see by trying a new thing. Have you ever had to try something new before? I hate trying new things when there are things I'm not good at, right? <laughs> I don't like to embarrass myself, right? So if I've never played a particular game, I don't want to do it in front of people because they're going to see I'm terrible at that game. Don't like it. Then again, I love trying new things as it pertains to food, and that's probably obvious by my uh, you know, bodybuilder physique. But I love trying new things as it pertains to food. I went to China in college, and I tried all kinds of weird stuff. 
you know, travel to Scotland and try haggis, right? I'll, I'll eat anything, really. I'll try anything at least one time. I'll never eat stinky tofu again. I'm just telling you, don't try it. It's not worth it. But I like to try new things. And I wonder how you feel about that. Do you like to try new food? Are you adventurous in that way? Are you more kind of closed off? Like, I know what I like and that's what I want. And what's hard about this teaching today is God's pushing us to try new things, to taste and see by trying something new. And the big question for us, this is a really important question, so listen carefully. The question posed by this scripture today is, was learning new things and receiving new revealings from God something that only happened to early Christians? Or can we also learn new things from God? That's an important question. And I think you know in your gut what the answer is. If you just let your gut answer, your gut would say, of course we can learn new things from God. We can have new revealings from God. We can, we can have our eyes open, our minds open to something new from God. On your gut level, you would believe that. But then uh, Christian teachers get in the way. And they start saying difficult things like, well, God's revelation is closed and you can really only learn from Scripture. There's no other way for you to hear from God anymore. These visions, these movements of the Holy Spirit, those things shut down after the early church, and you just got to stick to your Bible, and that's all you have. There's a lot of teaching like that out there. And so in order to understand the way I think about the Bible when I read it, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey. It's just a tiny bit of history. Hang with me. I'll try to frame it in terms that are easy, okay, and that are maybe a little bit fun to understand. But I want you to think of the history of Christianity in four quarters and then over time, okay? So we have four quarters of Christianity. I'll just divide them up into 500-year increments, okay? That way it's easy. It's not perfect. It's not exact, but it kind of gives us a flavor of the history of Christianity. So you had the first 500 years, the second, the third, and the fourth. So in the first 500 years of Christianity, it was messy. It was diverse, a lot of differing viewpoints. The Holy Spirit was really working and moving in people. And if you lived in this place or this place, you might hear a slightly different flavor or interpretation of Christianity. There was no like one person in charge or no one group in charge. A lot of people learning new things. The Bible didn't even really exist in its current form in the first quarter of Christianity. It was a time when most of it was passed down through oral tradition or a few letters of Paul here or one of the Gospels there. Most churches only had maybe a few writings. They didn't have the whole New Testament. And so it was a really Wild West kind of time for Christianity. But it was also the time when Christianity spread like wildfire, when Christianity spread peacefully, we weren't spreading Christianity by violence or force, but it was just by word and by our witness, by how we lived our lives. We lived our lives differently than the culture around us, and it appealed to people. Then something happened in the second quarter of Christianity. As John Philip Newell likes to say, we got in bed with empire. And I love the way he says that, because it is that seedy and that gross and that wrong what we did. But as a, a Christian people, especially the leaders, we got in bed with empire, particularly the Roman Empire, which would then eventually become the Holy Roman Empire as Rome fell. 
During the second quarter of Christianity, there was a tug of war between Christians and political forces. And the political forces really won out most of the time. So they be, there became what was what would be called the Pope, right? But the Pope was always tangled up in politics as much as in religion and theology. And the Pope became a force for as much evil as good in the second quarter. As we enter into the third quarter of Christianity, we are just full-on imperial Christianity. We in the West, anyway, are completely aligned. The state and the church are together, lockstep like this. And because of that, the church engages in a lot of violence and harm. In the third quarter of Christianity, the church uh, instigates crusades against Islamic people. Now, granted, uh, of course, the Islamic folks were also invading Europe, so there was, there was politics there. There was real war going on. But the church was part of it because the church was wed to empire. So there was a lot of violence then. Toward the end of the third quarter of Christianity, uh, we began colonialism, where we started basically forcing indigenous peoples across the world to follow Christ, to dress the way we dressed, to talk the way we talk, and to worship the God we worship by force with essentially a sword or a gun to their head. And that eked into the fourth quarter of Christianity as well. And also in the name of Christ, we enslaved millions of people. So as we get into the fourth quarter of Christianity, something changes, and it's in some ways very positive and in some ways negative. Here's what happens. A couple of people come around, like you may have heard of Martin Luther or John Calvin, a guy named Zwingli. There are people who are called Reformation people, uh, reformers. And these reformers had a new idea, which was basically that this whole concept wasn't working anymore, that the church was broken and corrupt and needed to be fixed. And they had some good solutions kind of democratizing Christianity and pulling it away a little bit from the Roman Catholic model that existed in the Renaissance time. They had some good ideas, but they also made some turns that made life more difficult. I'll give you one example. In the fourth quarter of Christianity, Roman Catholicism responded to science and the Enlightenment by saying that the Pope was infallible, that when the, spoke, the, the Pope spoke from the chair, from the ec cathedra, like out of the chair, out of the, out of the office of the Pope, that those words were like the words of God. And in response to the Enlightenment and science, Protestants, who were not Roman Catholic, needed an authority as powerful as the Pope, but they didn't want to put a person in charge. So Protestants said, well, that's going to be the Bible. So on the Roman Catholic side, the Pope was infallible, inerrant, perfect, in theology, on the Protestant side, the Bible was the final authority. You might see a problem with this, which is the Bible, well, the Bible can be interpreted 6,000 different ways, right? <laughs> so every Protestant denomination has chosen which way the Bible is going to be interpreted, and then that's their pope. <laughs> that's their authority, is that scripture, right? And so what happened is the Bible became smaller and smaller as people contained it into this space and said, this is the only thing that we can learn from. And to be honest, guys, what happened is the Bible kind of became God for a lot of people. I'm going to teach you a couple of big words. One of them is bibliolatry. 
Bibliolatry is basically the worship of the Bible. It's idolatry of the Bible. When the Bible has become more important than God. The Bible is very important, but the Bible is not God. Another word is uh, hyperbiblicism. <laughs> you like that? Talk about that around the water cooler this week at work, right? Hyperbiblicism. But this word is, is similar in that we are so biblical, we're so focused on Scripture that we aren't open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But you see, we come from the Wesleyan tradition in the United Methodist Church. And John Wesley was deeply concerned with whether or not we were moving in sync with the Holy Spirit of God. In a passage like we see today, the story of Peter, we see that Peter was listening to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was pushing Peter to do a new thing, a dangerous thing, an exciting thing, an uncomfortable thing, by engaging with these Gentiles. And I think we're called to do the same today. I don't think just the early church had access to the Holy Spirit. I think we have access to the Holy Spirit today, and the Spirit continues to speak and inform us. And here's the ironic part. The Holy Spirit speaks also through Scripture. And so if we're thoughtful and meditative and take our time and study carefully, God will reveal new things to us in very old stories, like the one today. There are two important things that Peter says in the story that should just knock your socks off. It should just blow your mind what Peter says. And if you listen carefully, it should really change the way you think about the world around you. The first thing Peter says is, I should never call a person impure or unclean. Did you hear that? I should never call a person impure or unclean. You know, I had some experiences in the last six months where people have been really hard on me. Um, they've been kind of personally attacking me and been really angry with me uh, for reasons that I don't always understand. I'm sure you've had that experience in life where you frustrated someone or you've, you've broken a relationship and somehow um, it results in them trying to retaliate or do something uh, negative towards you. And in that process, it's very tempting to think of the person as evil. But no person is evil, okay? When we start thinking that way, that's when we start killing people. That's when we start hurting people. That's when we start enslaving people, which we've already done, and we have to move away from. So no person is evil. In the words of Peter, no person should be called impure or unclean. To be sure, there is impurity and dirtiness in all of us. But that doesn't make us, at the core of our being, at the essence of our character, impure. We are pure children of God. We are cleansed children of God. But certainly we have impurities that need to be continually addressed. And I wonder if you have someone in your life or maybe a group of people in your life that you think of as impure or unclean. Those people that you just will not fellowship with. Maybe they live on the streets. Maybe they've immigrated from another country. Maybe they're a different color. Maybe they speak a different language. Maybe they marry someone who looks very different than who you've married. There's a second thing that Peter says. This is really powerful, too. He says, I am really learning God does not show partiality to one group over another. 
I love that phrase. It's in the Common English Bible translation, so it's a little looser, but it says, I'm really learning. I love that Peter says, I'm really learning. <laughs> and this is a story of Peter learning. I'm really learning that God does not show partiality to one group over another. So I wonder if you have that as well. When you think of like the perfect human, do they look like you? I mean, are they white, straight, cisgender, European American, middle class? Is that what the perfect human looks like? Because when we go to the wisdom of scripture, the perfect human looks like a brown person from the Mediterranean, from Palestine, who's homeless, who wanders the wilderness, who preaches things people don't want to hear, and who dies dirty and bleeding on a cross. That's the Holy Spirit's picture of the perfect human. So we've got to think carefully about how we think of other people. We have to really learn God does not show partiality to one group over another. So we are invited to taste and see, in part, by trying new things, by inviting new people into our family, by seeing new visions and sharing them with one another so that the wisdom of the beloved community of God can discern whether those visions are holy and pure and good. And as we discern that together, we take those visions and we bring them into who we are as a community. So join me. Let's taste and see by trying new things. Amen. Amen.